Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. We are continuing to look at the book of Mark. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. You can find this on page 844 in the Blue Pew Bibles and page 1003 in the Red Pew Bibles that you can find around. Uh, if you don't have any near you, there are some back by the tech booth. Uh, as you are turning there, I want to remind you of some, excuse me, of some of the things that are coming up. Uh, first of all, we have what we call Caruso Kid Zone, which is for children ages 5 to 5th grade. They go out the back door and they'll study a lesson. They're starting to use uh, some material by Marty Machowski, and so they're going to go through the entire story of the Bible in the next three or more years, looking at how God has worked from beginning to end, creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. So parents, I encourage you to ask them what it is that they learned today as they went out into Caruso Kids Zone. I want to also remind you that we have a congregational meeting right after worship today. Uh, for members of the church, we're going to just kind of give an update on what's going on. Everyone is welcome, uh, but members also, remember, you'll be nominating leaders for this next year for training. Uh, and then also, finally, next week, we have our Caden Community Group. Uh, this is an opportunity to fellowship, to eat together, to enjoy one another. And so if you are available next week, we'd love for you to come to the Cadence House uh, for Community Group. If you want details on that, you can see me or one of the leaders afterwards, or Teresa is wearing a beautiful blue sweater right over here. Everybody look at Teresa. She loves to be embarrassed. So we would love for you to come and join us at the Cadence House next week for dinner. Now that you have had time to turn to Mark chapter 8, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in with power. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the opportunity to get a look into the disciples' lives and how you related to them. We pray that as we study this text, we would have a better understanding intellectually of what you are teaching us, that we would hide in our hearts the deep truths of the gospel and your love for us that we find here, and that we would work out with our hands the application of how we can apply this text to our lives. We thank you for all these things. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, anytime we open up the Bible, we need to understand the context because context is... That's right. For those of you who are new here, I have trained the congregation to say that after I say context. Context is king. What that means is that anytime we're going to read the Bible, anytime we're going to open up God's Word, we need to understand all of the context. We need to understand who it is that is writing this book. We need to understand who they're writing it to. What is the setting? What is the purpose? What's the whole meaning behind the book that we're reading? Because until we understand that, until we grasp what it is that is being written, we won't fully understand exactly how this text applies to our life. And so today, we're going to be looking in the book of Mark. Now, Mark is the shortest synoptic gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because many of their stories line up and are in all three books. Mark is the shortest one of those gospels. It was written by John Mark from Peter's Witness. He wasn't actually a witness to these things, but he was hearing what Peter said and wrote them down. And the book of Mark is written to more Gentile-oriented Christians, men and women who don't have a background in Jewish history, and so they have an understanding of who Jesus was, but Mark doesn't use a lot of the things that we find in the Old Testament. Throughout the book of Mark, we see three key themes. The sonship of Jesus Christ, how he belongs to the Father, is one of the Trinity, we see the authority of Jesus Christ, that the things that he says and the things that he do show that he is from God. And we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest message ever told. Now, as we've gone through the book of Mark, not only have we been looking at the book itself, but visually we've been using kintsugi pottery as a way of kind of picturing what the gospel is and how it applies to our lives. Kintsugi pottery is this pottery from Japan that is broken and then repaired with gold in the middle. So that now the bowls and plates can be used again, uh, but they are accenting the breaks instead of trying to hide the breaks. Uh, this is a beautiful representation of the gospel. You see, we as humans are broken. We're broken in sin. We are broken in the situations of our lives. And of our own power and volition, we just sit there as broken pieces, unable to be used for what we were created for. But through the gospel, the power of understanding that we're sinners who cannot save ourselves, but God sent Jesus to do what we couldn't do, live the life we should have lived, die the death we still deserve, raise again from the grave, and through faith in Christ and his actions, we can become sons and daughters of God. 
through that faith. We are repaired. We are brought back together. We are made able to do what we were designed to do, and that is to glorify the Lord. And so this Kintsugi pottery has been good imagery for us of what the gospel is, because that is the key and main image that we find throughout the gospel of Mark. Now it's interesting because some commentaries or some commentators divide the book of Mark into two halves, and we've been looking at the first half, which begins in chapter 1, verse 16, after all the introductions, and goes all the way up to chapter 8, verse 26, which we covered last week. In this first half, we see the demonstration of Christ's authority, who he is and what he has done as he shows how he is the Son of God. And now, starting in verse 27 and going to the end of the book, we see this second half, which is the testing of that authority, the testing of that message that Jesus has, and the testing in suffering, primarily for Jesus, but also for his disciples. We're going to see Christ tested. We're going to see to see whether or not he really is the Messiah that God has sent. And so having seen Christ's authority, his power, and his claims in the first half of Mark, we're now going to see those claims tested, especially the cost that it is going to cost the disciples to follow Jesus. Because as we've seen all throughout up to this point, the disciples still don't have a full grasp on who Jesus was. They saw his miracles, they heard his teaching, but they didn't really understand that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And now we're going to see that their confusion is only going to compound as Jesus starts to describe what he is going to have to do as their Savior. So before we jump into the text today, I just want to start us off by asking all the students in the audience, what do you think about and how do you feel when I say the phrase partial credit? Now, there's probably a mix of emotions, right? You, you probably have some frustration because you didn't get full credit, but you probably also have a sense of relief because at least you got some of it right and got some of that credit, right? That's kind of what we're looking at when we look at the disciples. They, they're getting partial credit because they're answering some of the question, but not fully grasping everything that is there. That's what we see in today's text as, as, as Peter answers Jesus but doesn't fully understand what it is that he is saying. Just like in math or uh, in school, when we get partial credit, they're missing something. They don't have the complete picture. As we saw last week, they're still not fully grasping. If you look back at chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, Jesus talking to his disciples say, uh, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus is constantly challenging his disciples to understand who he is. And now as we transition into the second half of the book where we're going to see how all of his claims are going to be challenged, it's very important that they begin to grasp exactly who he is. And so Jesus is seeking to help change their perception of who he is and of who the Messiah that they expect is. And so today, as we open up this text, we're going to see that Jesus starts this with some questions, and we're going to see how their interactions lead to a better understanding, hopefully, for the disciples. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at Peter's partial credit, 
because he partially gets things right. We're going to look at Christ's correction, how he helps Peter to see the full answer. And then we're going to look at discipleship defined. What does it mean to follow Jesus? So let's start by looking at Peter's partial credit. And we see this in this short little section, 27 through 30, where Jesus asks these questions. He begins by trying to change their perception, change their limited view of what the Messiah is going to do by asking questions. He wants them to be thinking about what it is that he's saying. He wants to exhort them in what he is teaching them, but start by opening their minds to question what exactly he is talking about. He wants to help the disciples. Now, before we get to the questions, we notice at the very beginning in, in verse 27, Jesus is moving all around the promised land as we've seen. And here, very specifically, we're told that he's in Caesarea Philippi. Now, since context is king, that's right, we want to know where we are, because that setting actually helps to flesh this picture out a little bit. It's very interesting because Caesarea Philippi is known for three things. One, it's known for the Herodian temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus and the goddess Roma, so a pagan temple. Two, it's known for an area that venerates Pan, the Greek god of the underworld. And three, it's an area known as the beginning of the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus IV. Now, for those of you who maybe like me, don't really study a lot of history in the intertestamental period in between the Old and the New Testament. The Maccabean Revolt was this revolt of Jews against leaders who were trying to oppress them. And the Maccabean Revolt is something that is very near and dear to the Jews because they were able to push out their oppressors. Now, we know that the Maccabean Revolt didn't result in a Messiah, and yet the concept of what they thought of when they thought of Messiah, somebody that was going to push out oppressors, was fulfilled somewhat in this Maccabean Revolt. So that's our setting, where the Maccabean Revolt began and where there's a lot of pagan idol worship. Now, I don't want to be careful to read too much into the location, but I do find it interesting that the very place where that Maccabean Revolt began, the overthrow of oppressors, is the place where we first hear that as Messiah, Jesus is not coming to push out the Romans. Instead, he is coming to suffer, die, and be resurrected. So Jesus uses this setting to change their perspective on what it means to be Messiah. So let's look at these questions. He has two main questions here. They're leading questions, very open-ended, so the disciples can tell him uh, a wide variety of answers if they wish. The first is, who do people say that I am? And the second is, who do you say that I am? So first, he's trying to get the disciples to think about, what have you heard the crowds describe me as? Who do the crowds think that I actually am? And then he shifts their minds to say, now, what do you actually believe? Who am I according to you? And the goal here is to help the disciples recognize that their view is incomplete. The idea of the Messiah, as we've talked about the last few weeks, as taught in the temples throughout the Holy Land, was this one who is coming in to push out Rome, to push out the oppressors, and to give them back their freedom. But the reality is, a Messiah like that would really only be temporary. Once you push out the oppressors, you wait a few years and more are going to come back. 
But the Messiah that Jesus is, is not temporary. Jesus as Messiah is eternal. And so the disciples are thinking in this very temporary oppression of Rome Messiah. And Jesus is saying there's so much more. That's what he's trying to get them to do as he asks them these questions. Now, before you get too frustrated with Peter, or before you get too enamored with Peter, just know that Peter is often the spokesman for the disciples. So when Jesus interacts with Peter, this isn't a, well, I'm better than the rest of these guys. I don't know what they think, but this is what I think. Peter is acting as a spokesman on behalf of the disciples, and he says, you are the Messiah. And this is right. He is the Messiah. And yet Peter and the disciples don't have a full picture of what it means to be the Messiah, as we're going to see in just a moment. Their picture is of a conquering Savior who pushes out the Romans, someone like David, this conquering king. But Jesus is going to emphasize that he as Messiah has to be humbled. Now, we do know that Peter's answer of you being the Messiah is given by God, but again, it is incomplete because the kind of Messiah that Jesus is going to be is not the conquering king and is instead one who takes care of them in ways they didn't even know they needed to be taken care of. It's interesting, as people who are reading this from a a much farther along perspective, We've seen in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, how over and over again Jesus is emphasizing what we now know is the truth of the gospel. You think back to chapter 7, verses 1 through 30, and we saw how the heart was emphasized. Not the outward actions like the Pharisees were doing, but the sinfulness of the heart and how that has to be taken care of. And here again, we see that transition. Now Jesus is going to directly teach that to his disciples. And it's interesting, too, because even though Peter answers correctly, Jesus tells them to be silent, to not tell others. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because we've seen this over and over again throughout previous iterations of Jesus' miracles. He heals somebody and says, don't tell other people. Now, if you remember, the reason he tells them not to tell other people is because he's not there as a great healer or as a great controller of weather or as a caster out of demons. Instead, he's there to bring the gospel message, and the miracles that he does are a way of affirming that that message is true. In this case, the reason he tells Peter and the disciples to be silent is twofold. Number one, they don't yet fully understand what it means that he's the Messiah. And number two, he has not revealed himself as the Messiah to the world at large. And so we have this question-answer time where Peter gets partial credit because he has the right answer, but he doesn't fully understand exactly what it is that Jesus is talking about. So now that we've looked at Peter's partial credit, let's look at Christ's correction in verses 31 through 33. Now, Mark moves to the truths that the disciples have been missing. He's emphasizing that the disciples haven't gotten it right so far, and so now he moves on to these truths. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this to them plainly. Jesus begins to correct their limited understanding that a Messiah is just a military commander. 
He begins to teach the disciples that instead the Messiah must be rejected and killed and suffer and rise again. This is huge. And this is unexpected. If you're expecting a great military commander to come in, and the person that you think is going to be that military commander, and he says, I have to be beaten up, I have to be uh, whipped, I have to be suffering, I have to be tried incorrectly, I have to die. You're like, what is going on here? But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Now, another thing that we need to realize as we connect back to all of the prophecies about Jesus and think about who he is, is that in the Old Testament, the idea of resurrection is associated with three main things. Number one, the vindication and resurrection of the sacrificed servant of Yahweh. In Isaiah 52 and Daniel 9, we see that resurrection occurs with a sacrificed servant and vindicates that servant. Jesus is connecting to that. Number two, the, the idea, the concept of resurrection in the Old Testament anticipates the exaltation of the Son of Man, a title that Jesus is already using in this text. We see that in Daniel chapter 7. And then number three, the idea of resurrection in the Old Testament anticipates the royal enthronement of the Lord of David. In Psalm 110, we see that resurrection has to do with the one who would come from David. So Jesus is starting to give his disciples glimpses into who he is. Glimpses into what he's going to do. Glimpses into how he is going to fulfill those prophecies. Commentator Bayer says this, All of this is necessary. In fact, in the Greek, we see that it must happen. Because of the pure eternal and messianic rule of God begins with a sacrifice for sin. That is, sacrificial reconciliation between God and man, as well as overcoming the power of evil. And so what we're seeing here in the text with the language that Mark is using is that this has to happen. This isn't an option. You know, one option is conquering king, one option is suffering servant. This has to happen. He has to suffer. He has to die on behalf of our sins, because only then will he be able to save us and overcome evil. And we notice, too, in this description that Jesus gives in verses 31 through 33, he lists all of the Jewish authorities that are a part of the Sanhedrin. This is the, the Jewish highest ruling court. And we know that all of those people coming up in the next few chapters are going to reject him, they're going to seek him out, and they're going to kill him. Jesus knows this. He knows that the Jewish courts are going to come after him. And then finally, Jesus' claim that he will raise again from the dead after three days was puzzling. It was puzzling because Jews did anticipate all mankind would be raised from the dead at the end of the age. And so for Jesus to say, I'm going to be raised again from the dead after three days confuses them. And yet, he speaks plainly. He speaks in a way they can understand, which is different because if you remember, we've already seen him speaking in parables, in, in stories that sometimes hide truths. But here, he begins to speak plainly. And with all these things that Jesus is saying, it's starting to scare the disciples. 
And so Peter, again, as the spokesman, takes Christ aside. He, d- he doesn't want to embarrass him, so he takes him aside and he begins to rebuke him, telling him that what he's saying is wrong. But in verse 33, Christ turns to all the disciples, knowing that Peter is the representative of them, and rebukes them. He doesn't rebuke Peter the person. He rebukes the idea that the Messiah should not suffer. Because he's saying, Peter, you and the disciples, your minds are in the mentality of man instead of trusting in God and God's plan. We see in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 how Jesus was going to be a suffering servant. And yet the Jews were still looking for this military leader. They still had in their minds the way things worked as they viewed them, as they saw them. And Jesus is saying, no, look at how things work from the perspective of the Lord. Peter's rebuke, Peter's telling Jesus that he is wrong shows that even though he said, Jesus, you are the Messiah, his view of Jesus is not complete. His idea of the Messiah is not fully fleshed out. And so Jesus shows his disciples the Messiah is the king of God's eternal kingdom who has come to die for sins. How is Jesus going to save them? Not by conquering kings, but by dying for sins. And not only that, but by quoting from the resurrection and bringing forth this idea from Psalm 110, Jesus is showing that he is the royal priestly king who has come to bring the new kingdom of God and who has come to overcome Satan. Jesus is taking all of their ideas and he's turning them upside down. Because when they look at what the problem is, all they can see is the problem through their man-centered eyes. We're being oppressed. We're being pushed down. We're not being allowed to worship as freely. How do other nations solve this? Other nations solve this by going to war and pushing out the oppressors. Well, there's supposed to be a Messiah coming, so clearly he's going to do the same thing. But instead, Jesus says, no, I'm coming to suffer and to die for your sins. I'm coming to take care of not just your temporary problem of the Roman oppression, but your eternal problem of hard hearts. And so in this section, we see Christ's correction of Peter's partial credit. We see how Christ teaches Peter that he got part of the answer right, but not the whole thing. That there's more to the story. And that as Savior, Jesus is going to do so much more for them than just push out Rome. Now it's interesting because every time we see this story of how Christ has to die and be raised again for our sins, three times in the next few chapters, it's going to come up. And after every single one of them, we're going to see a lesson on discipleship. So let's take a look at discipleship defined here in this section in verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. Peter partially understands that Jesus is the Messiah, just doesn't fully grasp what that's going to be. Christ corrects him, showing him that he's going to be far more than a military leader. And now Jesus moves and turns to all those who are with them and defines discipleship for those people. 
As I already said, in chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 10, verse 45, we have three major predictions of Christ's death, and each one of them is followed by instructions on the cost and the promise of discipleship, what it is required to follow Jesus. So here, we've seen the first prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection, followed by Christ gathering the whole crowd together to issue instructions on how discipleship works. Bayer goes on to say, uh, the aim of the call to deny yourself and take up one's cross has nothing to do with unhealthy self-accusation, self-abasement, self-hatred, loss of personality, or the nurturing of a martyrdom complex. That is not what Jesus is calling them to. Rather, through surrender of and death to self-determination and self-reliance, one becomes free from any detracting, fallen, or sinful affection, idol, or loyalty, so that they can follow Jesus' kingdom rule in an ongoing and maturing way. So in the instructions here in 34 through 9-1, Jesus is giving the whole crowd instructions on how to follow him. And he tells them not to raise themselves and their status up, but instead to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And that, as Bayer says, is not feeling terrible about yourself. Instead, it's giving up your self-righteousness. It's giving up your self-satisfaction. It's giving up your saying, I can do this, and trusting instead in Jesus the word follow that Jesus uses here in these verses in 34 at the very end means that we are called to belong to the Messiah wholeheartedly and persistently. To follow Jesus is not like, hey, I'm taking a long trip. I want you to come with me from now to the first town. And that's it. That's, that's following me. No, it's being with Jesus all along the way. And so in our lives, to follow Jesus means to wholeheartedly and persistently pursue him all throughout our lives until we see him again in the new heavens and the new earth. This echoes the commands that we see in the Old Testament, commands to walk with God, which is expressed in undivided loyalty and obedience. 2 Samuel 15, Ruth chapter 1, both talk about how following and pursuing is undivided loyalty and obedience. Self-denial means letting go of self-determination and control. I don't know about you, but that sentence does not make me comfortable. I am sinful enough and self-aware enough to realize I like to be in control. I like to drive some places. I like to be the one that picks things out. I like to be the one that is doing things, even when sometimes it's just somebody making me feel like I'm in control. And yet, the lesson we're learning here is that the Christian walk is not about being in control. The Christian walk is not about self-righteousness. I have done enough. The Christian walk is not about self-determination, deciding what I need to do to be saved. The Christian walk is about replacing that control with total dependence upon Jesus. 
Paul in the New Testament later is going to say in Romans chapter 6, we are called to die and rise with Christ. Taking up our cross is essentially carrying the burdens that we have and pursuing him in spite of those burdens and trusting that the journey is far better, the destination is far greater than anything we could do under our own self-determination or self-control. Jesus is trying to tell the disciples, stop trying to be in control of your lives. I am calling you to discipline, to, to humble yourselves, to follow me. Let go of your self-sufficiency and cling to Jesus, the Messiah, the one who will lead us to a new life given by Christ. As long as we cling to self-determination, as long as we cling to self-sufficiency, as long as we cling to the things of this world, we're always going to be left empty-handed. We're always going to be left without contentment. But the more we surrender to Jesus, the more we give Him our daily worries and concerns, the more we trust in Him and dive into His Word and obey Him, the more glorious our lives will be because we will see that He is in control and He is calling us to love and obey Him. So verse 34 tells us to take up our cross and follow Him. And then in verse 35 through 37, he illustrates and explains what this is going to look like. In fact, we cannot discouple 34 from 35 through 37. So let's look at this. 34, calling to the crowd with his disciples, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Then in 35 through 37, he describes what that looks like. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So verses 35, 36, and 37 expand on what Jesus is calling us to. They unpack the idea of taking up our cross and pursuing Jesus. Jesus gives us this paradox of saving and losing our life. If we continue in self-determination, if we continue seeking to control all things, if we continue trying to save ourselves, we will never find real or eternal life in Jesus. But if we stop trying to control everything and trust in Christ, trust in the gospel, trust in the hope that God has given us, we'll find eternal life in Jesus and contentment in what he has for us. True, eternally lasting life arises from a deeply personal response to Jesus. In verses 36 through 37, we see that when we continue to try to control, when we continue to be self-preserving, when we continue to accumulate wealth for selfish desires, that selfish gain robs us of the opportunity 
to cultivate a God-centered, God-filled life. That's what the word forfeit means, is that we have been robbed of the opportunity to pursue the Lord. Listen, brothers and sisters, our lives are very valuable. Our time is very limited, and none of us know how much time we have left. This world is going to try to convince us to squander that, doing all kinds of things. Things that aren't necessarily evil, but then can totally consume who we are. Satan wants us to squander our lives instead of pursuing the Lord. And so Jesus is giving a serious warning and a vivid promise. If we surrender our lives to the life giver, if we surrender our lives to Jesus, he will preserve us for all eternity. He will give us value because he will make us God's children. He will offer us rest for our souls, peace, and contentment. Loyalty to Christ leads to these things. But that loyalty to Christ also leads to the derision and persecution of this world. And so Jesus warns us not to be ashamed of him because the world is going to try and push us away from Jesus. The world is going to try and make us deny Jesus. The world is going to try and make us think about anything but Jesus. And if we listen to the world, there will be profound consequences for denying Jesus on earth. When we reject Jesus here, he will reject us in eternity at the final judgment. And so we have to pursue the Lord. Nothing in this world is going to bring us the contentment and joy that Christ can. Jesus closes this section up with chapter 9, verse 1, which most commentators believe is referring to the transfiguration, which is what we'll cover next week. Some will see how glorious Jesus is before they die. And so in looking at 27 through 9-1, we've seen Peter's partial credit, we've seen Christ's correction, and we've seen discipleship defined. So how do we respond to this text? Peter got partial credit as Christ tried to show his disciples who he was. He wasn't the Messiah they expected, but he was the very Messiah that they needed. And while they expected a military commander, Christ came instead, not to liberate us from a nation, but to liberate us from our sins, first and foremost, and to defeat Satan for all eternity. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we look at this interaction, as we look at how the disciples got it partially right and on their way to fully understanding who Jesus is, is do we only get partial credit? Are we missing some aspects of Jesus? Do we know about Jesus and try on our own power to live a life that might be good, but not trust in him fully? Or do we trust in him? Trust in his commands. Pursue him fully. Because it's easy for us to try and gain the whole world. That's what everybody around us is trying to convince us that we need to do. We need to pursue the world. We need to get promoted. We need to gain all these things. And when we believe the world, we come to Jesus 
hearing about his being Messiah, and we try to run our own agendas and just fit him in where we can. But God is calling us to his mission, to God's mission, and to God's purposes. Jesus loved us. Jesus died for us. And Jesus calls us to carry our cross. Jesus calls us to stop living for ourselves, to stop trying to be self-sufficient, and to trust in God instead. Again, Christ came for us, lived for us, died for us, rose again for us, and is calling us to trust and follow Him. So are we like Peter and the disciples and only partially grasping who Jesus is? Or are we willing to trust that what Jesus says is true? Listen to Him and fully pursue the things that He calls us to. Let's pray together. Father, as we study this text, we think about the ways that we have run from you, the ways that we try to control things, the ways that we try to be what only you can be. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us not just to get partial credit, but to understand Christ's correction and definition of discipleship so that we can follow you fully lovingly and willingly participating in the life you have called us to and knowing without a shadow of a doubt that one day you will wipe away every tear from our eyes there will be no more death no more suffering no more sorrow anymore because you will reverse the effects of sin and we as your sons and daughters will be with you in all eternity so father we pray that during the hard times in life when we're persecuted or pushed back against you would remind us of that eternity that you have promised us. You will remind us of the life that you call us to, the life of disciples, and that you will strengthen, encourage, and help us to take up our cross daily and follow you. In Jesus' precious, precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.